This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Mostly What God Does, Reflections on Seeking and Finding His Love Everywhere. Written and narrated by number one New York Times bestselling author and broadcast journalist Savannah Guthrie. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Power Moves Ignite Your Confidence and Become a Force. Written and narrated by best selling author Sarah Jakes Roberts, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. I have a counseling degree. I'm very sort of interested in trying to figure out like where does the gospel intersect with our life? Yes. And I realized as I was sitting with these people and listening to them, relating to them, identifying with them in many ways, I, I was hurting for them and trying to figure out there is clearly a message that Christians have to bring here because there is so much hurt and pain here that they're experiencing. And the gospel is an answer that like it is the answer. Right? Yes. And so, so that's really what brought unfolding adoptees to life was saying, okay, there's there's a lot of benefit to sitting with other adoptees, to hearing each other's stories, to learning from each other, but let's give direction to this. Like let's give direction specifically that points to the gospel. Mm -hmm. From Christianity Today, you're listening to Adopting Hope, a podcast about adoptive, foster, and spiritual mothering. I'm Joyce Koo Dowerpole. And I'm Sasha Parker. We're both moms, and we're both adoptive moms. And on each episode of our show, you'll hear from a mom and sometimes a dad about their journey in adoption and foster care. Our hope is that this podcast provides hope and encouragement as you hear these stories. Whether you're an adoptive, foster, or spiritual mother yourself, an adoptee, or someone who just wants to encourage and love adoptive and foster parents. These stories are all windows into the gospel, the story of a God who adopts us and loves us with a redeeming love, and whose love empowers and compels us to extend that love through the unique joys and challenges that come from adoption and foster care. Thanks for tuning in. We pray this encourages you as you listen. And even when our hearts are breaking, even when our souls are shaking, oh, oh, oh we've got this. Oh, 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 oh. Usually we have foster or adoptive parents on our podcast, but today we have a special guest. An adult adoptee, Aaron Blades, shares his story of what it was like to grow up in a small town as a Korean adoptee with Caucasian parents. He has a counseling degree and is passionate about helping other adoptees with identity issues that come from being adopted and separated from the culture of their birth. Aaron started an organization called Unfolding Adoptees as a Christian resource for adoptees. Welcome to the show, Aaron. Thanks for having me. So tell us how old you were when you were adopted from Korea and a little bit about your adoptive family. So I was I was adopted when I was about four months old. I was abandoned, so I, I don't actually have much information about my birth story besides um, that I was abandoned, that I was taken to an orphanage by the police, and four months later, I was brought to the U.S. And so I was quite young. My parents as you mentioned in the intro, we're, we're white. Um, and so I was adopted into a white family. I have an older sister and a younger brother who are also Korean. 
but we're not biologically related and we're not, you know, we're not connected besides just by adoption. And so it was helpful to have them around um, mm-hmm. just to, you know, have other people who could relate and especially as adults um, who can relate. Um, but that was, that was mm-hmm. my family growing up. Mm-hmm. What was the community like that you grew up in? It was a really, really small town. Mm-hmm. We had we had one stoplight. So when I say wow. small, it was really small. Um, I always tell people that it was two thousand people, and then Margaret, my wife, looked it up and she found out that it was actually eight hundred. Oh. So, <laughs> oh my I remember goodness. the first uh, stoplight that got put in, majority white. We were part of the few racial minorities. I think that in some ways uh, it was a really positive thing, surprisingly, um, in the sense that even though we didn't have other people who were Korean around us everybody knew who we were. And so it wasn't like we had to explain ourselves every time we went out with our Mm -hmm. family or were around. People just kind of knew who we were. And Mm -hmm. so it it required less explaining, but it was definitely a a very small, very white community. Yeah. Were you the only adoptive family in your community or were there other families? No, there was was one other family that had also adopted Korean kids. Hmm. We didn't connect with them very strongly. And I think that a lot of that was just, you know, we were different ages and and just not in the same Mm -hmm. uh, place, but we were one of two families. So Mm -hmm. it wasn't a wasn't a big adoptive community. Yeah. And what was that like in terms of being one of the few minorities in town, but also not having other adoptive families besides that one like kind of around you? I I didn't really honestly think about it too much. I think part of it was the time period, right? And so this was the 80s and the 90s when we were all supposed to be colorblind and Mm. where race was really not supposed to be something that mattered. And so that was one piece of it. I think that the other thing was that growing up with white parents in a white community it's a little bit weird to say, but I always thought of myself as white. Mm-hmm. And so I think that it was, it sounds really silly to say this, but I'm I'm always a little bit surprised when I look in the mirror and I see a mm-hmm. Korean looking back at me because I just feel like I, I should be white. And, and mm-hmm. I, I don't even really know what I mean by that, mm-hmm. but I move through the world as if I'm a white person. And so when I think about racism, when I think about, you know, racial dynamics in the U.S., historically, I've thought of that as something that other people deal with. And so when I'm confronted with it, it's something that's a little surprising to me. Like it's mm. something that I'm not expecting because I feel like a white person. Mm-hmm. And so it's just, a, it's it's a weird thing and it's a little bit hard to explain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, yeah. But that's, that's sort of the best Yeah, me I mean, about. that makes sense in terms of how the environment in which you were raised and not having as much exposure to your Korean heritage that you would not have an identity or like a connection with that. Mm-hmm say you were to, you know, give advice to adoptive parents who have, who are parenting a child of a different race Mm -hmm. right now, what would you tell them would be a good way to have these types of conversation with their adoptive kids? I think that, you know, I would make an, I would make an effort to put other adopted kids around people Mm -hmm. who sort of match their racial and ethnic background I think that's a pretty common suggestion, and I think that that's something that makes a lot of sense. I think that the challenge when you grow up in a small town, though, is that there's often just no options, mm-hmm. right? And so my parents tried. They did take us to a couple of Korean cultural days um, in the closest city, which was, you know, at least an hour drive away. But it's not very sustainable if you live in a community like mm-hmm. that to do that. And so mm-hmm. I think the question is a little bit more challenging sometimes when it comes mm-hmm. to like the practical, you know, the practical issues. So I think 
in some ways, there's these things you can do, like putting your kids around other Mm -hmm. people who match their background. I also think, though, that there's some parts of this question that adoptive parents can't short circuit Mm. by trying to do enough right things. Mm. Um, I think that sort of behind this question is often the sense of if I do the right things when it comes Mm. to making my child sort of acclimate racially to living in the U.S., I can help them sidestep, you know, awkward encounters Mm -hmm. with racism and and they'll have a like very clear identity of what it means to be non-white in a white majority culture. And I think a lot of this is just part of growing up and just sort of wrestling through the Mm -hmm. questions just Mm -hmm. as a person. Mm -hmm. And you can't really step, you know, sidestep a lot of this. Yeah, that's that's really helpful. When was when did you start to kind of feel different or have thoughts about your identity? How old were you? when that kind of started to be triggered? So this actually didn't happen until my 30s. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> and so this is part of my story that I think uh, is really common, but not in the sense that I'm one of the oldest sort of first wave of adoptees. So I'm 38 now. And I think what I've been hearing as I talk to other people has been that it's really common to start thinking about these things when you hit your 30s, mm-hmm. when you start having kids, mm-hmm. when you're you know, you're just in sort of a new stage of life. And so up until then, I think that I felt like I had sort of thought through adoption, you know, appropriately so, kind of put it in a box almost mm-hmm. and said, I've thought about this, I've processed it. You know, I'm I'm fairly indifferent towards it. It's something that happened in my life. It's not a big piece of my identity, but it's something that I've kind of considered and, and I can just sort of set it aside and move on with my life. There's a term called coming out of the fog. Have you have either of you heard of this? Mm-mm. So coming out of the fog is a term that adoptees often use to describe this process of coming to grips with how you were taught about adoption mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. how you actually experienced adoption and the impact on your life. And, mm-hmm. and that's kind of the best way I can describe what happened when I was mm-hmm. 30. And all of a sudden, it, it, well, so it was really triggered by a DNA test. Okay. <laughs> oh, um, okay. Huh. Tell us about that. It was triggered by a DNA test. My wife was, you know, just encouraging me to do this really for our kids' sake. Mm -hmm. Um, She was saying, you know, our kids, um, as they get older, might be really curious to know a little bit more about your cultural heritage, which is their cultural heritage. Mm -hmm. And people always ask me if I really was Korean because, you know, they'd be like, oh, you don't look Korean. And so there was always this question of, of what is your actual cultural heritage? And DNA testing obviously made that possible. So I took a DNA test and... I would say that it was one of the more stressful things I've gone through in my life in a very long time. I had a really hard time, um, particularly when it came to not getting the results themselves, but when it, they give you an option where you can click, do you want to be connected with, Mm. you know, people in our database who might be related to you? And that email sat sat in my inbox for a good week. Like Mm -hmm. I just kind of hovered over it and was sort of like, and finally (laughs) I just clicked it. Mm-hmm. Nothing happened, right? Like, okay. and I kind of felt this mm-hmm. disappointment. Yeah. You know, I was kind of disappointed that nothing happened. It was a combination of relief and disappointment mm-hmm. all at once. But I think that the reason why this triggered my sort of coming out of the fog experience was because taking the DNA test connected me to the reality of my story, right? Like, up until mm-hmm. then, it was all this very hypothetical mm-hmm. oh, you were adopted you could have theoretically had this other life in Korea, Mm -hmm. but 
the the reality is that you were adopted and you live in America and you have this life. You're married, you have kids, and life has you know gone on. But I think that the DNA test and specifically this, do you want to be connected to your relative option? Mm-hmm. All of a sudden made it real of like, oh yes, there are, there's like a specific person living in the world today mm-hmm. that is likely genetically related to me, right? Mm-hmm. Like I'm, I'm kind of part of their story that they may or may not know about. And that was just very off-putting to me. <laughs> like mm-hmm, yeah. I, I, I wasn't really prepared to deal with that mm-hmm. emotionally. And that was what triggered a lot more reflection mm-hmm. on like all of a sudden I started looking back in my life and I was thinking, oh, like, okay. So um, thinking about the ways in which uh, looking like someone actually mattered to me. I think that Mm -hmm. that was for me, one of the biggest things that I've identified that was sort of Mm -hmm. a theme throughout my childhood was even though race was never a big topic, I do think when I look back, not looking like anybody was sort of a bigger deal than I Mm -hmm. thought it was. Yeah. Yeah. And so all of a sudden that type of thing just kind of came tumbling out and I had never really thought about it before. And all of a sudden it was sort of front and center of like, Mm -hmm. oh my goodness, like this actually did did matter to me. It does Mm -hmm. matter to me Mm -hmm. and I'm not an overly emotional person. Um, And so feeling these different things coming all Mm -hmm. at once was a a pretty challenging time. I I have this image of like these gates that are holding back a lot Mm -hmm. that you kind of kept behind these closed Mm -hmm. doors and then the um, DNA test kind of opened the floodgates Mm -hmm. and all of a sudden tumbling out was all Mm -hmm. of these things that you hadn't thought about or felt. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of it was just wanting to protect my parents. Mm -hmm. Right. And so Mm -hmm. I think that um, there is like, this is a personality thing for me. Like, I don't mm. think everybody feels mm-hmm. this or needs to feel this, right. but I, I, I just really have a hard time feeling like thinking about my adoption too much or investigating my adopt, my biological family in mm. some way on some level is hurtful towards my mm. adoptive parents. Mm. And that's something that I'm just really not willing to tread too mm. um, strongly on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And my parents are great. Like, they've yeah. always been, like, very open about this. I mean, they had to be open, right? Like, <laughs> um, this was never They couldn't really hide secret. it. It wasn't like, yeah. <laughs> surprise. Um, this was never a secret. But, right. And they, they've always been, like, if you want to search for your family, we, we'd be happy to help you. We'd be happy to support yeah. you. And they've always said these things. And yet, there's always this piece of me that's like... Hmm are they really serious? Like, does, mm-hmm. will this really not hurt them at all? Right. Like, and mm-hmm. I, it's just, like, I, like I said, this is a personality thing personally yeah. for me. And okay. I, I know that not everybody deals with it this way, but mm. so that's one of the reasons I yeah. think that I kept it locked in. Mm-hmm. In your blog, you talk about feeling this feeling of belonging and otherness. At, it's kind of like these two feelings. Can you explain a little bit more about that and moving between these two different worlds and what was it that kind of helped bring you these worlds together a little bit? Yeah. I mean, that's that's really been a very recent thing. And so I, I don't really know. This, this is one of the things that I'm still trying to think about um, personally, mm-hmm. just because I don't know what it is. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't I don't know what it is that makes me feel Korean. Right. Like, yeah. so I've been I've been to Korea twice now. The first time it was before I came out of the fog. And so it was like an interesting trip where I saw the country where I was born. And it was really more of almost like a tourist trip. It was 
uh, less actual investigation and more just, oh, I was born there. This would be something interesting to do. Why don't we go see it? The second time was after I came out of the fog, right? And so I was a, lo a lot more interested in the connection as an adoptee to my birth country. This was a trip specifically to look in some, in, in part to, to look from a biological family. Mm. It was also to introduce my kids to Korea, to show them, you know, sort of this is where your dad came from and this is part of your heritage too. And so it, it had a lot more weight to it that second time. Mm -hmm. And I think that it was a really powerful experience to be in a country where I looked like everybody, you know, like mm -hmm. this whole looking like someone, I dress differently, I'm not built like a typical Korean guy. Mm -hmm. And so like, I clearly stick out. But at the same time, it was really weird because I, you know, I would just walk down the sidewalk and I felt like the glances were really at my wife and kids, not at me. Um, mm. When I would go out with them, everyone would stare. When I went out by myself, everybody would just sort of walk past me and it was not a big deal. And so it was this really unusual experience of fitting in in a way that I'd never fit in before. And then I also, like, just as I started to, to be more exposed to the culture, I, I live in a very Korean area of Philadelphia. And that was not intentional. It wasn't a reason why we moved here, but we happened to end up in one mm -hmm. of the largest Korean communities in the U.S. Oh, wow. And so being around sort of other people in grocery stores and restaurants, it really, it's really just turned into an interest of mine. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't know what, why. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. there's nothing about it that feels like it should draw me in, but it does for some reason. And so it's been really interesting to try to figure out like what that it is. And the flip side of this though is sort of the otherness that I feel. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of pointed out that, you know, I don't I don't dress like a Korean. I don't I'm not built mm -hmm. like a Korean. And even around here, you know, there's a very clear distinction between the Koreans that are are very clearly culturally Korean and the Koreans that are Americanized. And mm -hmm. it's just been interesting to see that and even in seminary which was you know a significant korean population was there i did not feel like i fit in with the korean group right mm -hmm. like they they spoke the language together they would eat together they would hang out together and there was something very different about me not that they were in any way like trying to exclude mm -hmm. me but it wasn't like oh there's the koreans over there i should just join in with them mm -hmm. I, I didn't fit and mm -hmm. so it's kind of this weird third culture are you familiar with their culture yes yeah i did like missionary kids, diplomats mm -hmm. kids, like they're they're not really fully one mm -hmm. or the other. Mm -hmm. They're just kind of caught in between, never really kind of having a home. And I feel like that's very much my experience mm -hmm. with my Koreanness. Mm -hmm. So, so how did you deal with that? What are some? Because there's probably a lot of people that are listening. And what encouragement or advice would you give to people who are kind of feeling that belonging, but then that otherness and trying to figure out where they fit? Yeah. Well, first of all, I, I would say to encourage people who are feeling that, that mm -hmm. you're not alone. Mm -hmm. And I think that this is not even unique to the adoptee experience, right? Like I, I just I just mentioned missionary kids, diplomat kids. Like there, there are other people in the world who go through this. And I'm not mm -hmm. saying that that makes it easy, that mm -hmm. it makes it, you know, go away. But the feeling that nobody else can understand this, I think mm -hmm. is one of the more dangerous things mm -hmm. that you could be feeling, right? There are other people out there. So go find them, right? Mm -hmm. and, yeah. and that's really the purpose of what you started mm -hmm. with a few of your friends, the Unfolding Adoptees community. And I love that and that it's really meant to connect those so they don't feel so alone. Mm -hmm. So tell us a little bit about 
kind of what you've seen come out of it so far? I know it's still fairly new. Yeah, yeah. No, it's very new. It's really exciting, though. So basically, when I started thinking more about my adoption, I started joining these other adoptee groups and just trying to put myself around other adoptees. I found it very helpful. It it was a very odd feeling to be surrounded by adoptees who were all kind of going through these same questions, identity, cultural heritage, birth family searches, like all of these Mm -hmm. questions, which feel so unique all of a sudden you're in a room surrounded by 20 other people who are, have all thought through this, you know, to some extent. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing I the thing I noticed, though, was that many of these adoptee groups were not predominantly Christians. And so I started noticing that a lot of the adoptees were really angry about sort of what had happened in their life because of adoption. Mm. And it was sort of a spiral into you know, being very upset about sort of the injustice of the circumstances that had shown up in their life. And I have a counseling degree. I'm very sort of interested in trying to figure out, like, where does the gospel intersect with our life? And I realized as I was sitting with these people and listening to them, relating to them, identifying with them in many ways, I, I was hurting for them and trying to figure out, you know, like, there is clearly a message that Christians have to bring here because there is so much hurt and pain here that they're experiencing. And the gospel is an answer that like, it is the answer. And so, um, so that's really what brought unfolding adoptees to life was Mm -hmm. saying, okay, there's, there's a lot of benefit to sitting with other adoptees, to hearing each other's stories, to learning from each other, but let's give direction to this. Like let's give direction specifically that points to the gospel. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean that we're just going to short circuit everything and Mm -hmm. say, you hurt, you struggle, but Jesus saves everything and makes everything wonderful and go smile and, you know, live a happy life, right? Mm. Like we can sit in this painful spot mm-hmm. and relate to each other about that, but there is hope beyond that. Mm. And that's much of our message. That mm. That is our message. This episode is brought to you in part by Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries, which prepares Christian women for leadership. At Bow, we believe that every woman is a leader because she influences someone. So whom do you influence? Do you mentor a woman, serve in the workplace, or do you lead a small group, teach the Bible, or even lead an entire ministry? No matter who or how many you influence, our free online resources will help equip you. Our videos, podcast episodes, and articles from experienced women leaders will encourage you and perfect your leadership skills. They offer wisdom for dealing with ministry pitfalls, current biblical issues, health for your own soul, and insights for shepherding others well. In addition, BOW offers Bible studies designed to connect women of multiple generations. They provide a challenge to both women new to the Bible and those wanting to dig deeper. Be our guest and browse all of our free resources and low-cost Bible studies at beyondordinarywomen.org. This episode is brought to you by Our Daily Bread Ministries, a global media organization that makes the life-changing wisdom of the Bible understandable and accessible to all. As a part of that mission, Where You're From is a podcast for those who believe it's important to stop and listen before we speak. Join us on each episode as we ask another Christian thought leader, Where You're From, and discover how their life experiences and expertise even if we may disagree with something they say, offers us important perspectives worth thinking about. 
To see our list of guests, visit whereyou'refrom.org today. That's whereyafrom.org. I'm Russell Berry, reminding you that it's not just about where you're at, but it's also about where you're from. As an adoptee in particular, like, do you feel like the gospel has helped you in how you've gone about wrestling with, you know, your identity as an adoptee? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so this kind of opens a bit of a can of worms for yeah. me because I, I, I kind of think that the, the short answer is yes, but, mm-hmm. right? And I think that this is one of the challenges um, I've really had to struggle with mm-hmm. because I feel like the church and the way the church has talked about adoption has been very simplistic. Mm-hmm. And the net result has been that a lot of adoptees just feel very sort of passed over, I think, by the way that the church talks about adoption. So when you think about the gospel that's like normally put forth, it's, you know, God God saves us, he adopts us as children. And so adoption is a beautiful picture of that mm. gospel message. And I think that there's something fundamentally right about that. But I also think that there's something that's fundamentally broken, right? Mm-hmm. And we're well aware of, I, I feel like at this point, there's many adoptive parents who who shy away from the the I'm the savior complex. Mm-hmm. And so that's pretty well worn. But there is this sort of soundtrack around adoption mm-hmm. that is still like this is a beautiful picture of, of grace, mm-hmm. right? Um, we're redeeming a child and we're saving them. And I think that what what I hear as an adoptee when I hear this often is immediately like, well, what was I saved from? And was mm-hmm. it really that bad? Mm-hmm. Because what that is, is my biological family. Mm-hmm. And so the question is, well, okay, so I was saved in the gospel from sin. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and does, does yeah. is my biological family then the equivalent of sinful here mm-hmm. and darkness? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there's there's that piece. Yeah. I also think that adoptees often hear this and feel a little bit cornered into gratitude. Yeah. Right? Because if 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 adoption really is a picture of the gospel then how am I supposed to respond to the gospel? Mm. You know, the gospel is something that I'm grateful for, right? Like I've been saved. Um, I have been saved from sin, right? Mm. And I'm completely helpless and and I've been, you know, rescued. Um, and so what response is there but gratitude? And, and like I said, the soundtrack keeps playing over and over and over from the time we're young kids. Mm-hmm. And so you think about seven, eight, nine-year-olds, mm-hmm. you know, who are they to say, like, oh, but there's this other side. Like, there's this trauma. There's this mm. pain. And yet the soundtrack has always been adoption is good. Adoption mm-hmm. is the gospel, mm-hmm. right? And so there's this sort of disconnect between yeah. what I'm supposed to be feeling and what mm-hmm. I do feel and mm-hmm. how I score that away with what I think is theologically correct, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's where I think that the, the, the challenge lies mm-hmm. here with this conversation is how do we think about this in a more nuanced way? Yeah. Because... The gospel is clearly primary, right? And and that's what and like that's what should inform our identity. But I feel like some of the truth of that gets lost mm-hmm. because of the way we've talked about adoption just mm-hmm. in these broad strokes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And all of human adoptions are imperfect, you know, even mm-hmm. um there's healthier families, of course, and more dysfunctional ones, but and it doesn't completely mirror like the adoption that we have through Christ and just what you pointed out, like 
what we're saved from. And and that, yeah, that doesn't parallel. And this actually brings up another question that I wanted to go back to when you talked about going back to Korea the second time and looking for Mm -hmm. your birth family. And I'm wondering what happened with that? Were you able to locate them? If not, like, how did you process the results of that trip? I did not find them. Mm. (laughs) I think that um, Mm -hmm. my paperwork was as accurate as it could be. Mm -hmm. I know that there are some adoptees who find that there were translation errors. Police departments or orphanages will suddenly find documents that weren't supposed to exist when you show up. Um, That did not happen for me. Um, So uh, I tried to to visit the actual location where I was found, but Seoul has just developed so much that it wasn't Mm -hmm. really possible to, to pinpoint the location. And I went to the police departments and, and they had no additional files. And mm. so I think that I prepared myself for this. Um, mm-hmm. There really was nothing to go on in my file. But at the same time, like it's it's been this weird push and pull for me internally where it's like I, I, I want to know and I want to meet them. I'm trying to protect my parents through all of this. In some ways, I'm more interested in meeting my siblings than mm. my birth parents. Um, mm. If I if I have any, like that's right. me. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's been something that I've been very guarded about just because I know that there's not a lot of information to go on. Mm-hmm. I think it's likely that my children will probably meet some of their family just because of the way DNA testing is going. And I think that I've struggled with jealousy of mm-hmm. hearing other people being reunited with their families and being very, very happy for them. Mm-hmm. And at the same time being like, why like why does this not happen mm-hmm. with me? You know, like, why can't I get a break here? Yeah. Um, and so it's... It's probably one of the hardest things for me emotionally. It's yeah. when I hear stories, reunion stories, where it's like, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm so happy for these other people, but sorry. Yeah. And no, <laughs> it's okay. And, you know, I would love to hear just advice that you would give to adoptive parents on just how to navigate, especially the teenage years and where you, you, they may be coming out of the fog. And how can we better help our children transition through that? We want to hear your advice. Well, um, so I'm a parent myself. Yeah. So I approach this like very humbly because I oh. know like every kid is different, right? Mm-hmm. And so my experience is not going to be um, everybody else's. Um, mm-hmm. I I think that honestly, like the the things that many adoptive parents do are great, right? Like trying to be thoughtful about encouraging conversation, conversation, not shutting it down trying to put them around other adoptees, right? Like this is this is like a key part, I think, of, of helping adoptees process is mm-hmm. putting them around other people who can relate um, and who have the shortcuts to understanding a little bit more about the, like the actual sort of internal struggles and experience from firsthand experience. Mm-hmm. So I think that there's a lot of that that can be done. Um, I would also say that just observing the other families around us who have mm-hmm. adopted I feel like a lot of them put an extraordinary amount of pressure on themselves to mm. take better notes and to learn as much as possible in this like like effort to, like I said before, kind of to short circuit some of the pain and some of the mm. issues and dealing with trauma that adoptive kids have. And like I, I would just reiterate that I, I don't know that that's really possible. Mm-hmm. Um, this coming out of the fog mm-hmm. experience is something that you can't force that to happen. Yeah. And I don't think that anybody has a template for here's exactly when it happens. Yeah. Mm. Um, for me, it was 35 and it was triggered in part by my kids, mm. right? I've heard that 
it's commonly triggered when an adoptive parent dies, mm-hmm. right? Like that starts to to mm-hmm. turn people towards thoughts of their biological parents and, mm-hmm. and where they are. Um, birth of a child is another trigger. Like there, there are these milestones mm-hmm. that can often lead to this, but mm-hmm. there's no way of forcing it to happen. Right. And so it's kind of one of these things where it's like, it, mm-hmm. it, it happens because it's part of being a person and dealing with the complexity of a, a really challenging past, right? Mm-hmm. And so as adoptive parents, you know, you can do the best to put them in situations mm-hmm. where they can process, but there's no real way to short circuit the hard work yeah. that just they need to do. And, and there's mm-hmm. nothing, I, I know it's hard to hear as parents, like yeah. we yeah. want to fix things for yeah. our kids. We yes. want a formula, right? Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. But yeah. it just doesn't exist. Right. So, so kind of so. just being patient with them, walking through life with them and just trying to always be there in those moments when it might, you know, they might be coming out of the fog or are there different tools that you could recommend or maybe your website would be a a good, (laughs) or just, yeah, we want any, any tools you can offer. Yeah. Like clearly our website, I hope is an encouragement to other adoptees. The whole idea is letting just a huge range of adoptees share their stories and and mm-hmm. not not everybody will relate to every post. And that's because everybody's story mm-hmm. is different, but mm-hmm. there will be little bits and pieces that will resonate. Yeah. Um, we hope with everybody as they yeah. read and, and they'll latch onto that and be like, that that is true to my experience. Right. How did they handle this? And what is true? Like, where is the gospel here? So anything like that is always mm-hmm. helpful. But yeah, I, I, I honestly, I honestly think that mm-hmm. I, I, I would emphasize that we as parents just can't fix these things for our kids. Mm, And so even being there, it's like, of course you want to be there, but how do you set up structures where you're not the only one, right? Like this is Mm -hmm. part of the whole savior Mm -hmm. complex coming out Mm -hmm. in a different way. Yeah, Um, right. You know, like you cannot save them. The gospel is their true hope, right? Mm -hmm. And the gospel is something that, Mm -hmm. you know, God pursues us. It's not like the parents making their kids Christians. And so Mm -hmm. we all know this, right? right? We all know this, Um, but I just can't overemphasize this yeah, enough. It's yeah. so, and yeah. it's hard to be a, a parent um, and not be able to, like, I haven't walked through this. I am not adopted, you know? And so even going to to the Unfolding Adoptees w- website, I felt like it helped me so much to, like, hear these voices, read the stories, and understand a little bit more about like what my daughter one day will be wrestling with. But also it was this feeling of like, I, there's so many things I can walk through in life and guide her through Mm -hmm. that I've personally experienced. And this is an area that Mm -hmm. I cannot do that and all of, and equip her in all Mm -hmm. the ways that I want to, Mm -hmm. but there are other people who can, and that's such a beautiful thing that this exists Mm -hmm. and that you know, there are other people and resources out there mm-hmm. who might be able to help her. Mm-hmm. That's a that's a good a great thing mm-hmm. to to realize that yeah. as well. I loved in your blog how you talked about food and how just that ordinary thing kind of brought you <laughs> into your that into the Korean culture. Um, yeah. Can you share a little bit about that? Yeah, I I shared a story about going to a Korean restaurant and mm-hmm. food has been something that I've always enjoyed. I just like to eat. Mm-hmm. I like <laughs> I like eating. We all do. <laughs> yeah. Really as simple as that. Um, but um, yeah, I, I've always really just been into food and, and trying to understand how food works, mm-hmm. um, the culture, uh, cultural context for food. And when I started to 
think more about adoption, Korean food all of a sudden became this new area for me to explore. Mm -hmm. And so all of a sudden, I, you know, I lived in a Korean, like New York Korean community. I worked in Manhattan where I could easily access this. And so it was really just fun mm -hmm. to, to be surrounded by this new food and really immerse myself in it. And then also to know that there's this added very personal layer to why I would be interested. And I think that the interesting thing for me though has been like going to Korean grocery stores specifically mm -hmm. has been very interesting because it, it's a similar experience to being in Korea where I'm surrounded like primarily by culturally Korean Koreans and I very clearly don't fit in in so many ways. And then at the same time, like I do, right? Like I'm, I'm there and I'm side by side with these other people who are all just grocery shopping for their families. And there's something about that to me that is really, really helpful. Mm -hmm. Like just like picking up produce next to a Korean family who like, I, I don't know anything about their story, right? Like it could be another adopted person for all I know. Um, but at the same time, like, you can't help but realize that like you're in a Korean community, like you're surrounded by these other people. They're just going about their day and I'm part of that day, mm -hmm. right? Like, and, and I'm with them in that. And that's just been really, really fun. Mm -hmm. um, and when I realized that it was just one of these aha moments where yeah. I was like, oh, like, this is really, it's it's different, right? right. Like, and it's, it's really helpful for me. So. Yeah, you talk, you, there's a little quote, food has helped me frame my identities in a way that they can coexist and enrich each other. And I think that's really powerful because you're trying to find ways to connect with your culture and adoptive parents are trying to find ways to get their kids to feel something or feel some sort of connection. And mm. food is such a great way to engage with your culture. And I, I just thought that was so powerful. And just you sharing that story is just a picture of kind of how maybe a way to go about it and a way to feel connected when you're feeling a little bit maybe mm. otherly or yeah. So for some reason that story just really stood out to me. Um, yeah. Well, it's not, it's not an event, right? Like I feel yeah. like so much of understanding culture mm -hmm. is really boiled down to events yeah. in, in our, in America. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, well, you, you go to this day yeah. where you have like this festival and it's right. like, well, that's not really life. Right. Yeah. And that's what I feel like this is. is it's, it's more like just life. Like yeah. this is what Ordinary. people do. So. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, I know you have kids. How old are they now? They're 12, 9, and 6. So. Okay. Those are the same ages as my kids, actually. <laughs> <laughs> exact same ages as my three kids. And how have you talked with them about, um, you know, being, well, they're, they're um, you know, about your adoption experience, if you've been able to share that with them or about their heritage. How have those conversations gone with your kids? Yeah, I mean, they, they've been really good conversations and they're interested. They're equally attuned, I think, was the fact that they have a Korean heritage, even though they don't know very much about it. Mm -hmm. My wife is culturally very German. She spent a lot of time in Germany growing up. She speaks a language, you know, we still go back and forth frequently. And so that's in some ways a much sort of like, interper like interpersonally much more rich and deep connection. Mm -hmm. But all three of them have very much latched on to the fact that they are both German and Korean mm -hmm. um, and are interested in both. And I think that seeing them, it's been really interesting. Like th this would be sort of an add-on to my comments about about the church and the way we approach adoption. Mm -hmm. Is I think oftentimes when we think about adoption, we think about adopting a, a, an infant, right, or a child. Mm -hmm. And so that's that's adoption, right? And it ends there. Is mm -hmm. like, oh, there are these kids who need homes. We're going to give these kids a home. 
And what's forgotten in that is, oh, these kids turn into adults. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm much less cute than a little infant kid, but I'm still adopted and I still have like all the extra baggage and things that come along with that. And the reality is that my kids now have this additional multi-generational sort of baggage that I passed on to them in some ways. And it's not the same as mine, but they also have no sort of family tree beyond me, right? Mm. Like they don't know, like the, the whole, who do you mm. look like? Who are, who are your grandparents? And like, whose sort of features do you carry mm. on? Like mm-hmm. all of that's lost, mm-hmm. medical history lost, cultural context lost. Adoption carries through to them too. Yeah. It, this is not just sort of a, a baby and then adoption is over mm. and you're part of this new family. It's like, oh, like this, this keeps going. And mm-hmm. um, so it's been really interesting to just process it with them. Yeah. yeah. What words of hope do you have for adoptees, adoptive parents? What can you give us that will we can leave with a word of hope? I, I think that the hope... The hope in this is really the gospel, Mm. and that's where we have to come back to when it all comes down to it. And I've been doing, so like for adoptees, I feel like the way I nuance nuance this is I've been doing a lot of reading about lament and Mm. um, thinking through Habakkuk. And, you know, you're probably, I'm sure you're familiar with this, Mm. but right, like Habakkuk was written, the Southern Kingdom was in decline, the Babylonians were coming, and it's just chapters of Habakkuk sounding almost disrespectful right like god like Mm -hmm. why are you letting this happen like how how can you use the babylonians to bring judgment is this ever going to end Mm -hmm. right and i think that the thing for adoptees is that the the morning we have the trauma that we face like the the more difficult parts Mm -hmm. of the story this whole guilt situation that i Mm -hmm. mentioned before can be a lot to to manage Mm -hmm. and and I think that what scripture does is it gives us space in this concept of lament mm. to really sit and say, look, like there is injustice in the world and that mm. injustice is because of sin, mm. right? Like sin has entered our world. Families have been broken. Mm. You have gone through tragedy, not just you, but also your adoptive family and your biological family equally, right? Like mm. there is nobody who is exempt from this, mm. but our hope is in the gospel, right? Like. In in sort of these last chapters of Habakkuk, God says, like, he creates this vision and says, like, he, he essentially points to Jesus without naming Jesus and says, like, this is not this is not going to go on forever, right? Like, redemption is coming, mm. and that is our hope, right? Mm. And lament is something I read so that lament is uniquely Christian because it's rooted in the character of God, mm. right? Mm-hmm. Like, we, we lament because we have confidence that yes. God is who he is. Mm-hmm. He's omniscient, right? He's just, he's loving, he's merciful. He's all of these mm-hmm. things fully. And because we believe in him, we can handle this injustice, sit there for a while, ask questions, but know that God is God, right? Mm-hmm. And we don't have to rush to that. We don't have to skip over the hard parts, but that's where we end. Yeah. Um, so that's what I would say is hope. Like, you know, for adoptees, like this is something to really hold on to mm-hmm. and and just emphasize like this is not something only for adoptees, but also for the adoptive parents, mm-hmm. right? Like equally lost in sin, mm-hmm. <laughs> equally in need of the gospel yes. and, and not the one saving, right? Like right. they are equally in need of all of the hope yes. that's given in this in this book. And so mm-hmm. um, that's, what I would, Amen. that's what I would say. That is such a good word. And I think we sometimes just want to skip over some of the harder things and the pain. (laughs) And um, and we want our children, we want to protect our children from that too. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think it's one, like you pointed out earlier in the interview, 
you can't sidestep it. Mm-hmm. You have to go through it. Mm-hmm. And then there are questions that come that you may never have answers to mm-hmm. that will not be tied up neatly in a bow. But because I think of the hope that we have in Christ, we can we can have that ability to sit sit in it with God, mm-hmm. like he has not abandoned us. Mm-hmm. He is with us. And that can make a huge difference mm-hmm. as we go through it. Mm-hmm. So yeah. thank you so much, Erin. Thank you. Um, yeah. Such an honor me. to have you on. Yes. And a much needed perspective yes. of just having your <laughs> voice as part mm-hmm. of this podcast. And I look forward just to pointing people to that website and just for more resources that are contained there as well. So thank you so much. Thank you. You can find a link to Unfolding Adoptees on our show notes. If you're enjoying our show, please take a moment and help us spread the word. Share about it on social media or leave us a rating and review on iTunes. It really helps people find the show. Adopting Hope is a production of Christianity Today. It was produced by Mike Cosper, Joyce Dalrymple, and Sasha Parker. It was edited and mixed by Alex Carter. Our theme song, We've Got This Hope, was by Ellie Holcomb. We'll be back next week with another story. Thanks for listening. <laughs>